There I am. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Well, I mean, I do, but I uh, uh, hope it didn't. Well, anyway, <laughs> here I am now. Sorry, small glitch. <laughs> Welcome to uh, to Line by Line. I'm Pastor Josh Hawkins. I'm excited to be with you tonight and uh, ready to get started with uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 10 tonight, and I'm, boy, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm all a, a dither. I'm feeling great. This is, uh, we're, we're probably only going to get through like six verses tonight, but man, power packed verses. So, uh, let's go ahead and go to the scriptures. Oh, but let, no, let's pray first. And then we will beautiful, glorious, almighty heavenly father. I ask right now in the name of Jesus, Oh, flood the internet with your power, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that um, uh, that, that I would bring this uh, text faithfully. Um, and even more so, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would flow through what I have to say, that we would see the glory of God unveiled before us in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen and amen. Um, okay, let's go ahead and read. I'm going to go to um, verse 1 of chapter 10. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this. Christ. Yeah, I am excited about this. This is going to be good stuff. Yes, it is. Okay. Let's um so uh as we as as we remember what we've spent the last couple chapters talking about uh was the this uh, this offering that the apostle Paul and his companions had been called to go out and get from the churches in the Gentile world and to bring back for the well-being of the Jerusalem church, which was going through a famine. We've been walking through that whole thing. And before that, and really this is kind of the tenor of this entire letter, is Paul mending fences with the Corinthian church after some misunderstanding and some grumbling and some um, Paul's kind of let them down a bit um, and they didn't react well to that. And um, so Paul is working hard to rebuild his relationship with them. And in the next few chapters, this chapter and two more, 
we will see Paul dealing directly with people who are questioning his authority as an apostle. And I'm very interested in this, uh, to sit with Paul as he, in writing, deals with some hard stuff. I often joke that pastors get paid to have hard conversations. Uh, if you think about it, I find myself in that situation on a regular basis where I'm having to say something to someone that I know they don't want to hear, whether it's bad news um, about illness, etc., or maybe I'm calling somebody out on behavior that has been that was inappropriate, uh, pointing out a set of behaviors or a mindset that uh, aren't very Christ-like. Having communication, you know, communicating with uh, in between people that are in disagreement with one another. These are all things that pastors have to do on a regular basis, and, and it's not easy. And so it, it it's really hard, and sometimes it really wears on me, um, whether it's sitting with folks who are grieving because they've had a loss or having to be confrontational with someone who has said or done something that is inappropriate. These are things that we're called to do, to talk about things like giving that are uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. Um, Paul is feels like this is what Paul's doing through the entirety of this letter is dealing with some hard stuff. But that's this is where the gold of community is found. This is where the beauty of what Christ has done in our midst is discovered, is when is we discover the glory of Jesus' love in us and the activity of his spirit in us as we, you and I, walk through the difficult places of learning how to love each other. Loving one another is hard. It's worth everything, and it's all we really want in the world. But it's hard. It is a difficult thing to do. To love the way Jesus teaches us to love, which is the only way to truly love, is costly. Jesus showed us that. He showed us what the cost of love really was. He went to the cross. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. That's what true love looks like. And it's all fine and dandy when we're talking about it theoretically. It's wonderful and it's exciting. But in real life, <laughs> in real life, it's costly and it's difficult. And it requires us to do and say things that we do not enjoy doing or saying. Let's get to it. He starts off by saying, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, 
I appeal to you. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. As captured by this phrase. For a few reasons. Well, I mean, we're going <laughs> to... Do we often think of Jesus as humble? It's hard for us to think of leaders as humble. Not as hard as it used to be back in like Roman times because their leaders were not humble and humility was not a virtue for them. So now we appreciate a humble man to a point. But we don't often we don't often revere humility. We cheer on we cheer on arrogance. Unless it's pointed directly at us, then we don't like it. But when we see it out there in the world, we kind of love it. We're there for it, right? We we're like Yeah, he thinks that yeah, he he's kind of arrogant, but I kind of like that about him. Like, you know, does that make sense? Like I think of, you know, the the Super Bowl just happened recently and and um you know, we see we see we see football players out there strutting their stuff and we we rejoice with them when they when 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 our team our team <laughs> scores a go, uh, scores a, a touchdown or 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 does something amazing on the on the football field and we're kind of like in your face you know like we 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 do that thing humility is almost embarrassing to witness and it's always embarrassing to embody. It is being humble is not really fun. It's hard. And it's difficult. And we don't like to do it. I don't I don't like to do to I like being called humble. Does that count? <laughs> but Jesus is the perfect example of humility. My favorite, one of my all-time favorite verses, and I know I think I say this every single Bible study. Not this verse, but that this is one of my all-time favorite verses. But this is a verse I come back to a lot. It's a verse that I think about a lot. It's a verse that I that I spend time with and that I stack up against myself and shows me again just how far I have to go in in growth. But as Philippians chapter two starting with verse 6, talking about Jesus. It says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. It, well, verse 5 says, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Who, being in very nature God, Jesus was God, is God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, 
he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further. That even further part came from me. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's like God, we have God up here, the ultimate, the highest, the greatest. And he says, I, I'm not interested in maintaining that status. In order to save you, I will take on the nature of a servant and even further the nature of a human. And even further, I will die. And even further, I'll die on a cross. This downward mobility of the kingdom of God that says, in order to love you, I will demote myself. Though I deserve all the honor and glory of deity, I will become human, become a servant, die, die on a cross. This is what Jesus is embodying when he wraps a towel around himself and washes the disciples' feet. He says, now that I've done this for you, you should do this for each other. This servanthood posture. This posture that says, I'm not exalting myself. I'm de-exalting myself. I don't know what that, if there's a word that other, anyway, I'm lowering rather than fighting for my rights and what I deserve. I am handing that off to you. That as I go down, you go up. That's what love does. That's how love works. Jesus is the king of humility. He's the greatest example of humility in the history of the world by the humility and gentleness of Christ. I appeal to you. Do we often think of God as gentle? We so revere strength capability. We love Superman and, you know, superheroes and people with big rippling muscles. We love people that blow things up and smash things and, and force their agenda and, and forcibly shut down their enemies. Jesus is gentle.
Now you might say, oh, I want my heroes to be gentle with the innocent and violent against the guilty. But remember, you and I, we are the guilty. If God were to be violent against the guilty, he would have to be violent against you and I. The incredible patience that God has for us to come around and to say yes, for us to turn and to accept his offer of grace and forgiveness. It's astounding. It's mind-blowing. The patience, the gentleness, and the humility that God carries in himself. One of my favorite Verses, there we go again with favorite verses, but it's from Isaiah. It says, He tends his flock, God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. We're so quick to think of God as a warrior. I've been thinking a lot. I'm teaching an end times class a couple times this coming weekend in Indianapolis. And I've been thinking a lot of the passage in the book of Revelation where the elder says to John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And so John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what he sees is a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a, a slaughtered lamb in the midst of the throne. That we expect to see God as this fierce violent warrior, but we encounter him and he is kind and gentle and patient and humble. Yeah. And Paul says, I'm trying to embody Christ's humility and Christ's gentleness in my appeal to you. He's got some hard things to say, but he wants to live in, in saying them. He wants to live inside of the humility and gentleness of Christ. And you know what? Honestly, it works. 
better, doesn't it? Do you respond better to a leader who comes to you with tears in his eyes, who comes to you and says, I care about you so much. And these things that are part of your life are destroying you. Or do you respond better to someone who comes in and says you and, you know, and, and just forces his way in and crashes like a bull in a china shop through your world and smashes everything and then just leaves you broken and does it leave you better? Which kind of leader would you want Jesus to be? And which kind of leader should we be? What kind of parent, kind of friend? It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to go with. Second half of verses, verse one. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you in a way. I hear Paul He, he is, he's pretty obviously quoting something that he knows people have said about him, a criticism that he has heard from uh, uh, it's Titus, right? That he's heard from Titus that, the, that, P, that some people in the Corinthian church had of him, and he's quoting it in the letter. And this is another one of those moments, like I talked about before, where I'm not sure if I think Paul's doing this right right here um, to, to quote this criticism in this way feels to me a little petty. Like Paul's kind of, he's hurt by what they've said about him. And so he's being a little sarcastic and, and I gotta be honest with you. And I, I don't think we'll get there in, in this in, in in this study, I think it'd be next time. But Paul is outright sarcastic in the second half of this chapter. Like, he comes out with some pretty, I mean, almost bitter sarcasm in the second half of this chapter uh, towards some of these people who have said things about him uh, in the Corinthian church. And, and I don't know how to feel about it because I admire Paul so much but I just don't. And I love that this is being captured in the scripture so that we can simultaneously see what Paul, the leader Paul wants to be, but the leader that Paul's not necessarily succeeding at being. And I love that. And I need that in my life. <laughs> I need to see the clay feet of my human leaders and compare that to the Jesus perfection. I need to see it. I need their vulnerability so that I'm not sitting over here going, I could never be like you. I, I just, yeah. 
I think his hurt is sticking out a bit here and a couple other places in this chapter where we can tell that the things that some people in the Corinthian church have said about him have been painful for him. Of course they have. Paul gave is, you know, giving his life to this ministry. And now people are, people are popping up to say unkind things about his ministry, about him. It would really hurt. I've been in that situation and it is extremely painful and Paul probably handling it much better than me. So I have no right to criticize, but I do hear some, some pain here. It's not a criticism. I'm grateful that it's there. Anyway. The criticism they were bringing was that when Paul was with them, he was kind of chill and really nice. And then they get this letter from him, the first letter to the Corinthian church, that was just fiery and strong and even almost harsh. And they're like, this isn't the Paul we remember. Paul was Paul was a nice guy. And now he's being mean. Well, obviously, he's being mean since he's not here and he doesn't have to deal with people face to face. So, you know, anybody else, anything on the Internet. This is the 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 Corinthian version of a Facebook comment. This is kind of where they're at. And Paul is saying, my humility was you seeing Jesus in me. Verse two, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think we live by the standards of this world. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be as bold as I expect to be. I, I think that's that's quite a statement. Paul is saying, look, Unless you're at it, and he's not talking about everybody in the Corinthian church. He's talking about a, a, a group in Corinth who were had some things to say about Paul and his ministry. And Paul is saying, I, I would love it if you could rethink that attitude before I got there. Because I don't want to have this fight with you. But if nothing changes, we're going to have to have a hard conversation. There's nothing wrong with hard conversations. Like I said, this is a part of what it means for us to love each other. Is that sometimes we have to have hard conversations. And you would really hope that they could be avoided most of the time. You know, you let somebody know, I don't appreciate that. And then they change their behavior. But if they don't change their behavior, it is appropriate for people who love each other to have a higher level, more difficult conversation with one another. And Paul is being straightforward and honest. 
that I'm on my, I'm coming there to you and I don't want to fight. So could you please, can we fix this now? Can you let that attitude issue go so that when I get there, we can just love each other? And this doesn't have to be a difficult visit. I love that. I think that's so honest and so kind of Paul to say, I'm on my way. And I and when I get there, I will have this conversation if I have to, but I don't want to. I think that's great. And then he says this line. Some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So this is the heart of Paul's argument with them. Oh, you think we live by the standards of this world. No, 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 no. Because the kinds of things that they've been saying about Paul, the kinds of criticisms that they've been levying against him, are criticisms that make it obvious to Paul and to everybody else that they're operating out of a value system that doesn't align with the kingdom. The things they don't like about the way Paul leads are the things that he's trying to follow Jesus in. They don't like his humility. They don't like his gentleness. They want him to be flashy. They want him to be an orator, to have all of these big, flashy, poetic words. They want him to be a leader like the world wants and not a leader like Jesus wants. He says, I'm trying to be like Christ. I am not interested in being like Caesar. We don't live by the standards of this world. We don't receive authority the way the world receives authority. We don't measure success the way the world measures success. We don't speak to or of each other the way the world does. We do not fight against the enemy the way the world does. And we don't see each other as enemies. The ones who are speaking against Paul are using worldly, fleshly measurements and standards to try and measure a man who's trying to live out kingdom leadership and lifestyle. And of course, it clashes. Verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. 
If you expect me to behave like a worldly leader, then you misunderstand what I'm about and what I'm trying to do. This reminds me of the time when Jesus uh, is is ministering and there was a, a town that did not want to receive his ministry. And James and John come up to Jesus and Jesus refers to them as the sons of thunder. And they come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on those towns? We're going to call down fire on those towns. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know, you don't even know who I am, do you? Have you paid no attention? Or, I, and I talked about this in on Sunday, Peter grabbing Jesus. When Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to torture me, they're going to kill me, but then I'll rise from the dead. And Peter grabs Jesus and pulls him aside and says, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he, and he says, you only have human worries in your mind, not godly worries. He says, you don't understand. But my favorite example is Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. Where Pilate's saying, are you a king? What, you know, who are you? What are you? I need to know what to do with you. And Jesus looks at Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight to release me. He says, Pilate, the kingdom you operate under and the kingdom that you help run, Rome, it operates in through force, through threat, through coercion. It operates by saying, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to hurt you and I'm going to kill you. My kingdom does not work that way. That's why my people aren't fighting to set me free. In my kingdom, humility, gentleness, these are the things that we're interested in. We'd rather die for an enemy than kill one. And that is what Paul is trying to embody here. And that is what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, that's the kind of leader I want to be. A leader who's following Jesus' example and not the patterns of this world. All the things that the world would hold up as important for leadership, for advantage, they don't work in the kingdom. Worldly, in fact, worldly advantages get in the way of kingdom advance. That's why Jesus says things like, that's why Jesus says things like, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, my friends, in, in the world, being rich makes everything easier. <laughs> but in the kingdom, being rich makes everything harder. And Paul is saying, the kingdom of heaven cannot work like the kingdom of this world. I can't do the things that 
that a worldly leader would do because it would be contrary to what God is trying to accomplish. I would be working against what, what I'm trying to bring about. The church and its leaders cannot operate like the world. The world would completely overlook kindness, gentleness, meekness, and humility as quote-unquote weapons. But these are the weapons of the kingdom. The fruit of the Spirit are the weapons of the kingdom. In the kingdom, we, we want servanthood rather than coercion. What, what's coercion? Coercion is force. I'm forcing you. You have no choice. I'm forcing you to do what I want you to do. That's coercion. Whether through actual application of physical force or through the power of threat, that's coercion. The kingdom says, no, 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 I, I want to serve you. I want to love you into loving. I want to wash your feet. I want to serve you rather than threaten you. The kingdom says humility rather than boasting. We do it. We get a lot done by boasting in this world. I don't know if you know that or not, but it's the truth. There's. I'm going to stop. What do you think a presidential race is? It's just a year and a half of boasting. When I'm your president, I'm more capable, more intelligent, more, more uh, qualified. I'm better than that guy. So you should vote for me. It is 18 months of boasting. And the one who boasts the best usually wins. The cross is the victory of the kingdom, not the battlefield. The cross is the victory of the kingdom, not a corpse-strewn battlefield. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We might look at kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, humility as weak things. The world definitely looks at those things as weak. Paul says, oh no, they are immeasurably powerful. They have divine power, God power, creative power, resurrection power to demolish strongholds, utterly destroy the strongest places. Our weapons are far more powerful than the weapons of this world. Do you want to know why? Because 
If I kill an enemy, what have I just done? My enemy is dead. That is true. He is gone. He is no longer a threat. But all of his friends and family are now enemies of me too. And they're angrier than they were. So not only have I, I have not ended the cycle of violence. I have increased the threat of violence against me. Is this not what we have seen? The only reason that World War II ended is because we completely eliminated their ability to fight against us. And the end of that was the unleashing of the most destructive force in the history of the planet. Something that could literally end humankind. That's how we won. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Now, we could fight all day about whether or not there's such a thing as, as a righteous use of violence or, or you know, is there such a thing as redemptive violence? Is there violence that does good things? I'm not interested in that in that conversation right now. We could have that conversation at another time and place. I would love to have that conversation with you. But here, Paul is saying, when we abandon the things that work in the world, and we pick up the things that bring about kingdom ends and fight towards kingdom purpose, we have the ability to actually win. Fighting the way the world fights is destructive and it only makes us the person who wins is the person who becomes the least like Jesus. But look at the kinds of things Jesus taught us to do. Oh, you have a brother who has ought against you, go and talk to him and work it out. Because when you've done that, when you've forgiven him and he's forgiven you, not only are you both, not only is the battle over, but you've also gained a brother. I also think it's fascinating that when we look at people who've taken this seriously, people like Desmond Tutu, people like Martin Luther King Jr., people like Gandhi, who have taken these things seriously, they change cultures, they shift nations, and they win people over with love, with humility with kindness. Where the only blood that gets shed is their own. Through employing their own suffering rather than the sufferings of others. If someone has to suffer to make this happen, let it be me. 
That's a kingdom stance. We win our enemies over. We don't kill them. Now, we love to use this verse to talk about spiritual warfare. The weapons that we, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're powerful. They have divine power for the breaking of strongholds. And so we talk about how we can break strongholds in the spirit. And we can. We absolutely can. But it doesn't look like standing on a stage and yelling into a microphone. Now, I am a man of prayer, and I believe in prayer, and and I will do that kind of spiritual warfare all day long. But it's never going to be enough to really break strongholds. Let, Let me back up a little bit. When we wage war Jesus' way, we unveil the victory of the way of Christ. We unveil the reality of the target of our fight, not others. We're not not fighting others. Paul says in another letter, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're not here to fight humans. We're here to fight the thing that has these humans enslaved. And yes, they are fighting against us, but only because they're enslaved. So we are fighting against patterns of thought and behavior, against lies that they have believed and that have them set in captivity. And when we fight Jesus' way, when we take up the way of the cross, We reveal the glory of what Jesus actually did on the cross, which was undermine the whole system of the world that's based on threat and coercion and power and a course of power and death. We embody a cruciform way, a Christ-like cross-centered way in the world, and we reveal the ugliness of the world system. And the pointlessness of it. When the only way to get things done is destruction and death, we never accomplish anything, really. I read David Guzik, who I appreciate. He's a commentator on the scriptures. He said, those who had problems with Paul were caught up in using worldly weapons. And he references the, uh, the, the, the armor of God from Galatians. Instead of the belt of truth, they fought with manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, they fought with the image of success. Instead of the shoes of the gospel, they fought with smooth, pretty words. Instead of the shield of faith, they fought with the perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they fought with lording over authority. Instead of the sword of the spirit, they fought with human schemes and programs. 
And when we try and accomplish kingdom purposes with worldly means, we are only deceiving ourselves. Paul says strongholds won't come down that way. They'll only be reinforced. So what's a stronghold? Well, in the physical, it's a it's a place where the enemy has a fortified position. It's a bunker, you know. You can't your normal weapons just bounce right off of it. But Paul's using that kind of an idea as a metaphor for habits and behaviors and ways of thinking, feeling and acting that have been resistant to change brought about by the gospel. It's the things that we find ourselves doing and thinking and saying over and over and over again that don't look at all like Jesus. And the problem is some of those, we, we don't even see them. They're so entrenched in us that they're invisible to us. We don't even realize that we're living, we're living in the stronghold of the enemy. And sometimes we do recognize them because we keep coming around and we stumble at the same place over and over again. We make the same foolish choices over and over again for the same foolish reasons. Strongholds keep us running in circles. They stifle our growth into the image of Christ. They make it impossible for us to see each other and love each other well. They are lies we would believe about ourselves and about others. They make it so difficult to believe the truth about God, his love for us, and his desires for our lives. They steal from us again and again and again and again. They're places in our lives where the enemy hides so that he can ambush us over and over. In verse 5, Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As we're growing and becoming more like Jesus over time, there will be things in us that stick, that don't want to move. Mindsets, thought processes, behavioral patterns. And this is what they look like, okay? We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about others. We believe lies about God. We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about others, and we believe lives, lies about God. That's what a stronghold looks like most of the time. A stronghold looks like if we have it in our heads, I'm a loser, I'm never going to amount to anything, I can't grow in Jesus, I'll never be anything more like Jesus, no one will ever love me. I'm not worthy of God's love or the love of my friends and family. That's a lie. Or we believe no one will ever love me. God doesn't love me. That's a lie. That's a stronghold. These are all strongholds. 
And there's so many more, so many thousands, and we're running out of time. But here's the good news for you tonight. The way of the cross is empowered by divine power to destroy, to demolish those strongholds. And as we submit to Christ and take up the way of the cross and love others as we love ourselves and love God, as we learn how to do that by showing up over and over again, by asking God to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, those strongholds will be demolished by the power of God's Word, the presence of God's Spirit, by our regular communing with Jesus. So I want to pray because we're just about at the end here. There's another piece to this, which is as we do this, strongholds outside of us get destroyed too. Strongholds outside of us and outside of the church get destroyed too. As we embody Christ's way, heavenly power is released into the world to open the eyes of the blind. But let's come back to this place because every single person watching this video right now, there are still strongholds in your heart and in your mind. They're there. And I want to release some divinely empowered weapons right now. To destroy strongholds in your heart and in your mind. You are loved by the Most High God. And you are forgiven. The cross of Jesus Christ was for you. When Jesus died on the cross, your sins were forgiven. When Jesus, Jesus forgave you on that day, and he broke the power of sin over you. You are no longer a slave of sin. You have been set free by the power of the sacrifice of Jesus, by the shed blood of our beautiful Savior. Satan has no authority to hold on to you anymore. So right now, be free of guilt. Be free of shame. Be free of the stronghold, the idea that you are not the beloved of God chosen by him before the foundations of the world. Your name is written on the palm of his hand, and he adores you. So come home to him in every way that you can. Run home to his forgiving love and be free. Be free. He has given you a new name. He has spoken life and destiny, joy and peace over you. And you, you are being transformed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You are being made just like Jesus. And he has not given up on you. He has called you to become just like him. And he will see that it's completed. You need have no fear. He's not rejected you. He's chosen you. And he's called you in to belong to him. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I open up your heart to be loved by God and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's any unforgiveness in your heart, let the forgiveness that Jesus has extended towards you flow right through you and outwards towards them. He has already loved you and given you everything that you need. So forgive them and let them go. And don't be bound any longer by the things they have said and done to you. But extend the endless love and mercy of God outward towards them, just the way you needed it towards you. I bless you to be free from the things that other people say or think about you. They aren't important. He has declared over you that you are his beloved. His treasure, his prize. Receive those words of adoration and let go of everything everyone else has tried to convince you who you are or what you're worth. Stand tall and embody the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Drink deeply of the fountain of life and be made new in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, friends. When you discover another stronghold that's at work in your life, know that God has divinely empowered weapons for you to set you free. See you next week.